Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Paul LeBlanc. He is president of the Southern New Hampshire University, the nation's largest nonprofit provider of online higher education. Under his leadership since 2003, SNHU has grown from 2,800 learners to over 170,000 today. Look forward to getting into that story. He served on as a senior policy advisor at the Department of Education and currently serves on the National Advisory Committee on uh, the Institutional Quality and Integrity. He's an immigrant and first-generation college student himself. Dr. LeBlanc holds degrees from Framingham State, Boston College, and UMass. He directed a tech startup and was president of Marlboro College before coming to SNHU in 2003. His book is called Broken, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where is the human voice on the other side of this screen coming to me from today? Today, it's coming from rainy Manchester, New Hampshire, where SNHU is headquarters. We have a campus home here. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I was just up in Boston about two and a half weeks ago, and the weather was perfect. So I guess it's changed a little bit. We've been lucky. It's been a lovely fall. It will be, again, beautiful the rest of the weekend, we hope. <laughs> I've really been looking forward to this podcast. And when your publisher reached out to me, I got a chance to to take a look and read through most of the book. And it fits right in line, Paul, with the things that that we talk about here on The Human Voice. And so before we begin and jump into some of the things in the book, what was the catalyst that made you write this book? And I just just want to hear where it came from. What's What's the genesis of it? It's, Bob, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a book in 2021 for a Harvard Education Press, and it was a higher ed reform book, right? I work in higher ed. I was thinking about questions of systems and policy. This is a regulated industry. And yet it felt like I was missing something. There was this question I couldn't quite articulate. It was plaguing me. And I was really stuck. And I'm usually a pretty fast writer, but I was getting nowhere, uncharacteristically. And I realized the question. And, and I came downstairs from my study and I said to my wife, I know why I'm stuck. I'm stuck on a different question than the one I'm writing about. I'm stuck on the question of, can higher ed ever learn to love its students again? Wow. And she said, did it ever? And I said, well, as a first-generation kid who went to a state college, a public college that had really remarkable faculty, and I felt loved, if loved means I felt like I mattered to people, they invested their time in me, they lifted my potential and dreams. They helped me dream bigger dreams. Like that feels like love of a kind. And and then I so I was sharing this with a good friend who's a reader and lots of my writing. And he said, Well, why don't you just take a stab at answering that question? Put the book aside that you're supposed to be delivering and write. And Bob, I wrote constantly. I wrote like all day Saturday, 14 hours, get up early, wrote on like I wrote feverishly. And it was page after page, and I'd keep switching gears. And and when I finished, I put it aside, and I could write. I got back to my book, and it came. It flowed. It's like I had to get unblocked on that question. And I put it aside, thinking, "I'm going to come back to this at some point." And that's that was the source of broken. Interestingly, most of what I wrote then didn't make it into the book, but it was the starting point. It was the launching point for the book. Oh wow! I'd love to read some of that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Some of it is in there and in, in much better form, I hope. So, Paul, you argue in your book that that many social systems originally designed to serve people have, have ended up doing more harm than good. And I know we're going to get into education here in a few minutes, but can you provide an example that particularly disturbs you apart from education? Yeah, you know. Bob, I want to be really careful because we're going to start this conversation. It's going to sound like a litany of horrors. And, and my book is actually hopeful despite the uh, title. But healthcare, we mm. spend more than any developed country in the world, and we have some of the lowest general public health outcomes any place. It's remarkable to me. The criminal justice system, we incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than almost any country in the world, and it's a revolving door. And it has become a de facto 
replacement for another broken system, which is mental health care, which is a decimated system in this country. And in every one of those, no one who enters in comes out better. I, I, I'll caveat, healthcare, mixed bag. And, and the thing I would point out about healthcare or higher education, I know you want to come back to higher education later, is that if you have privilege, there's no place better than the United States, right? If you're, if you're going to Stanford and Harvard and the elites, no place better. If you have to have the most amazing cutting-edge surgery, I want to be at Mass General Hospital or Mayo or the Cleveland Clinic. But that's the exception. If you look at it from a system-wide perspective, system-wide perspective, these are colossal failures. And, and I could add, as I said, mental health, certainly elderly care. We are an aging population with no coherent, well-working system of geriatric care. So do you want some more or should I stop there, Bob? <laughs> I think it brings up something that I wrestle with all the time in my own work, as, as well as sitting here interviewing people as well. And it's the age-old question. It is, if these systems, Paul, are failing us, what's the root cause? Is it systemic design? Is it execution? Or perhaps it's just a lack of understanding of, of the human condition, the human psyche. Where, where do you fall in that? And I know, I know that's a huge question, but you, you had to have put a lot of thought in that in writing this book. I did. And honestly, Bob, I spent a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs and innovators who are reinventing some of these systems. And I and part of the delight and the optimism of this book is that there are alternatives out there and they are real. I also spent a lot of time talking to psychologists and a psychiatrist and sociologists and amazing people. So I had the best year of learning in my life when I set out to do these interviews all over the country. But to go back to your question, I think there's I think there's a a couple of things that work here. So the big one is the confluence of three critical factors. One is a kind of modern version of Taylorism. So this notion of the assembly line, efficiency, measuring productivity, right? And then you know Taylor's work from the 19th century really led to the Industrial Revolution. Then you add on to that technology, now widespread. Technology thrives on putting things in clear binaries, boxes, repeatable procedures, et cetera. Guess what humans aren't? They don't fit efficiency, boxes, replicable process. We're messy, right? We're complicated. And then you add in, and the real shift, you take those two things, and then the third leg of that stool of dysfunction is what I would point to back to 1980s, so Reaganism, that shifted the public discourse in America from the public good to the private good. It's mm -hmm. a defensible position, so I'm not trying to make a, but if you just take a look at where our spending happened, when did privatization happen? When did we start to see the erosion of support, support for public schools? When did we start thinking about mental health in terms of efficiency? And there were problems with the earlier mental health system. Remember, we deinstitutionalized. But what we didn't want to do anymore, because in a world of the private good, in a world where government is bad, I want to pay fewer taxes. And if, if you don't fund your mental health care system, it breaks. So, and, and we've treated healthcare the same way. So we are the really the one economically developed country that doesn't have a national healthcare safety net. Doesn't mean that's the only thing you can have. Many countries, as you know, have private health insurance layered on top, but you set the bottom and that's not what the United States does. So I think you take those three things together and you've got serious systemic issues. Then what happens in the mix of that is you start to dehumanize the very people that are supposed to be lifted up by those systems, and you dehumanize the people who work in them. The burnt out teacher, the jaded nurse, right? Doctors who get who really earn more income based on the number of people they see, shrinking the time that you get with them. So you raise another systemic question, which is follow the money. What do you pay for? Mm. Yeah, our values are based on our budgets and, mm. and what we pay for. So it's not an easy answer, right? It's, I wish I could give you like, you know what it is? Bob, yeah. it's this one thing, but it's the confluence yeah. of those things. I'm, uh, a big, I'm a big aviation nut. And when planes crash, it's almost always a confluence of factors, not one thing. Rarely is it one thing. These planes crashed because of a confluence, a perfect storm of, of things happening at once. Yeah, that's great. I also have said and uh, on, on my podcast where I've talked about it with a few different guests is as with anything, our greatest strength can be our, our greatest kryptonite. And 
as Americans, we're founded on this foundation of, of rugged individualism. And rugged individualism works really well in certain times, places, and in certain situations. But the things that you've outlined there, and specifically in societal systems, uh, when we're talking about society, society, when we're talking about communi community, non-communal mindsets can be very destructive as well. So I find that too very unique to the Western, but specifically the American mindset too. Absolutely. I'm going to think about myself before I think about everyone else. And we've seen, we've seen a little bit of that the past few years and even opportunities within our own cultures where we have subcultures that are much more less individualistic and more communal, where we see those, those rubs and that sandpaper. So I think too, we're waking up to the, to the reality as Americans that maybe, maybe that's not all what it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's a both and. We can be rugged individualist. We can have the American dream and we can think about others a little bit more as well. Fully agree with you, Bob. And I think, you know, part of what we know about the current mental health crisis is that when we lose community as much as we were forced to do during the pandemic, we pay a massive price for that. Mm. And when we confuse things like social media likes with actual relationships, we pay a price for this. So we see a chronic, you know, an epidemic of loneliness among young adults. Something like 72% in the last study of young adults just um, report being extremely lonely. That used to be the province of the elderly. They mm. come in at about 40%. Right. So, yeah, we've got some things we got to work on. Yeah. Well, let's and jump to education because you've been working on that a lot and you've been really good at it there at SNHU. So you bring a unique perspective, Paul, from your experience in the education sector. How do you think education as a system has veered off course from its original mission? Sure. So... I'm going to talk about higher education. I'm happy to talk sure. a little bit about K-12 as well. But in higher education, same same as healthcare, if you have privilege, American American higher ed's unparalleled. It's just top, right, world class. But that's not, that's, you know, it's a rounding error. The number of students who go to Ivy League schools is a rounding error in terms of the number of students who go to high, higher education in America. And then if you take a look at what's happening in higher education, 45% of the students who start with us don't complete. They often end up with a terrible trifecta of debt, some credits, no degree, worthless credits because they don't have a credential to attach to those. If you take a look at how we have funded, so again, remember I said follow the money, $1.7 trillion of student debt in America now. That's second only to home mortgages. It's more than all credit card debt put together, auto loans, et cetera. And that debt is now getting in the way of young people achieving other kinds of dreams. Simple things like getting married, boarding your first house. The reason why 20-somethings are living with their parents still. Um, you take a look at housing costs and then take a look at the amount of debt students have today. You think about then even more practically, any of your listeners who have kids in high school, what a terrible thing we've made the college application process. Yes. We've made it opaque. We've made it a vote on who you are as a person. We put enormous amounts of pressure around it, and parents have contributed, but schools, higher ed's contributed quite actively to this, right? And then you have uh, real questions now about the ROI. So I make all these sacrifices, I take all these loans, I get that degree, and why am I underemployed? Is this a relevant degree? Is it tied to workforce? So I think this is a, it, it's, I love my industry. It changed my life as a first generation immigrant kid. It made, you know, I feel like I'm a, unapologetic schmaltzy fan of the American dream. But that dream is less and less within reach of more and more Americans. And that's the problem with American higher ed right now. Mm. Yeah, my, my wife is a school teacher. And uh, so I get a daily dose as an elementary school teacher of what she struggles with. And, and even in a private school education setting, it, it's they struggle with the same things as anyone else does. And the reality of of kids today and having just gone through the pandemic and especially the elementary kids coming up, they've been through a lot from, yeah. from missing things, not having, not being in school, anxiety, mental health that, that they all deal with. And so we've got to take another look at 
what's going to happen to these kids in the next several years as they go into higher education? Um, and are we going to do it differently? So I'm fascinated by what you've done there at SNHU, uh, the crazy growth going of, of 2,000, 2,800 students when you started to, what what's your total learner enrollment right now? Yeah, I felt like I had to update you. I didn't want to interrupt your introduction. We we just shot into the to being the largest university of any kind in the U.S. We have 224,000 learners Oh, now. my goodness. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, Bob, is that it's every population you can imagine. So it's 30,000 traditional age students, so students who are not choosing a traditional campus or college, 18% military, so veterans and military families. It's 32,000 students of color, so more than all the HBCUs put together. We have more Native American learners than the largest tribal college. And then the great bulk of our learners is that working adult, 32 years old, couple of kids, has some credits from prior schools, and now they're stuck. They never got that degree, and they have to go back and get that credential to unlock an economic opportunity. At graduation, I ask my students all the time, why did you do this hard thing? You have a full-time job, oftentimes a job and a half. You got a couple of kids, and they say, I needed to make more money. I needed to take better care of my family. And then almost in the same breath, I wanted my kids to be proud of me. I want them to know their dad or their I want them to know their mom's college graduate. And those two things go right hand in hand. It's practical and it's also existential. Mm. Mm. What was that process? I don't I don't want to get too far into the business and the tech side, but did you have a vision for online education? What what was the catalyst for that type of of growth from this small, obscure university in Southern New Hampshire with, you know, which in, in in light of every other college in America, you go from at the bottom, bottom of, of size to the largest in the country. What what was the catalyst for that? What was the vision for that? Yeah. So we were very, very, very early into online learning. And I my background's in technology and education. So when I became president, I thought, this is a card we should be playing because it works really well for adults. You know, when you think about what is, when we ask adult learners to come to a campus, let's say you want, you're going to go back and work on that degree and you're going to take those night classes. It's Wednesday night at 6 p.m., for example. Think about what that means for a lot of workers, particularly people we are in most interested. I would say we are focused on the 45% of Americans who say they would struggle to come up with $400 for an unexpected car repair. That's whose life I want to change. Hmm. And that's what that's what is focused on. Many of them don't even know what their schedule is next week. If you work in retail, if you work in hospitality, big swaths of the American economy, you get a schedule for next week. It, it changes. So when I get tethered to a time and a place, oh, that's a problem. If I'm a low-income learner, I have less time. My time and I have less control over my time. So one of the things I think we fail to recognize is that. Time itself is a is a emblem of privilege, mm. and if you are poor and you don't have a washer and dryer in your apartment, it takes you more time to get clean clothes. You got to go someplace to get it. I walk down the hall and throw a load of laundry, and I don't even think about it. If you are low income and you don't own a car in big parts of America, it takes more time to get to the grocery store and back. Right? Is it a taxi? Is it an Uber? Am I waiting for a friend? Whatever that is, and 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 I think we forget the tax we put on low-income people in terms of time. So we're big fans of non-time-based programs, for example. And when, instead of asking people to be at a certain place, we said, no, go online. Like, you you, you can become a student at home. You don't have to drive somewhere. So that student, think about it. Get out of work. It's 5 o'clock. I got to get to class at 6. I maybe go through a fast food line and grab a quick bit of food in the parking lot for dinner before I go into class. And when class gets out and I get home, maybe my kids are already asleep. And if you came to our program, it's like, I come home for the end of the day, I have dinner in the kitchen with my family, I help my kids with their homework, get them bathed, put them to bed at 8.30, make myself a cup of tea, put on my big furry slippers, log on at 9 p.m., and now I'm a student for the next two to three hours. Which yeah. one works better? And so we all say we're driven by four Cs. Convenience was the number one driver. It just works better in their busy lives. Second one was cost. We kept our prices for we had 10 years without a tuition increase, where tuition increases are just an annual ritual in American higher ed. We also talk about completion time. If you're doing this hard thing, it's because you feel urgency. Like, I got to get unstuck. So can we get them to the finish line faster by changing our term structures, et cetera? 
And then the last one is credential. Get them the right degree. Like, gotta give them something that's worth something that has in you know that has demand in the marketplace. Those four C's, I think, really drove our growth, and that was great. Did I foresee this level of growth? Absolutely not. I wish I had that kind of sort of foresight. But I think you know, look at there's also sometimes good timing. Yeah. And if you remember, when online learning really took off, not traditional not-for-profit universities looked down their nose at it. It can't be as good. It's better if you're in the classroom with me. And and in some ways, they weren't entirely wrong in the beginning. You know, Clay Christensen, the famous Harvard Business School professor who talks about disruptive innovation, says when you have a real new disruptive innovation, it often isn't as good at first, but it gets better really fast. And we get better really fast. And when the nonprofits look down their nose at online, the for-profits jumped in, both feet. University of Phoenix was 500,000 students back in this heyday. Kaplan, Corinthian, ITT, these were all big for-profits. And later on, they got into bad behaviors in order to keep growing. So when we started to grow, we had very few not-for-profits looking at this area. And the Obama administration had clearly gone after the for-profits. There were stories in the New York Times on the front line. They were back on their heels, and it gave us an opportunity. So we we had some sheer dumb luck as well, Bob. <laughs> well, it's a great segue. You've talked about reconnecting us to the human facets of serving people in the context of education. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah. So let me say the piece we didn't touch on, I think what makes our programs work. Like our graduation rates for working adults are sometimes four to five times better mm. than the same population in a local area. When people say, what are you doing differently? Your academic programs look like ours. We plant our flag in relationships. Our secret sauce is our coaching model. We call them academic advisors. They're more like life coaches. So when you enroll with us, you get assigned an academic advisor who's with you through the whole journey. They get to know you. They know when work is getting you know, problematic. They know when your kids may be going a little sideways. They know when you're stressed. They know what your victories look like. And class after class, term after term, there's someone who's in conversation with you. Bob, how are you doing? Hey, hey, by the way, before we jump in on your stats class, tell me, how did your son do last week? Mm. First chapter of my book is called Mattering. And it's a term I get from Greg Elliott, a really wonderful sociologist at Brown University who writes about mattering. And mattering is different than belonging. You and I belong to lots of things that don't make us feel like we matter. Like I belong to professional associations. They get my check. I get their journal. It's a quid pro quo. I belong. I belong to the association. But I don't feel like they know me. Mattering is about like really knowing someone, right? Mm. And and I think that's what happens with our academic advisors. Because if I'm an online learner and it's 10 o'clock at night and I can hear my family in the next room watching our favorite television show and they're laughing and having a good time and I'm like in the dining room looking over this really hard stats textbook, that can feel pretty lonely. It can feel pretty isolated. And I'm not on a classroom where I can look at my peers and I can't lean over and go, oh God, Bob, what's going on in this class? But I have my advisor. So I have we have great uh, graduations. They're huge, 20,000 people at a time kind of thing. One of my favorite graduates from last year is this guy, Curtis, who comes from Mississippi. He drove an 18-wheeler, his tractor trailer. And he had long shifts, but there is a limit on how long you could drive in a given day. I think it's 14 hours. So at the end of a 14-hour shift, he'd pull into a rest area, and he would park his rig as close as he could to whatever building had Wi-Fi. And then he would log in in his cab, and he was a student. Mm. And when he was far from home and logged in, it was his advisor he was connecting with. Where are you tonight? How's the drive been today? And that sense of mattering, you know me, is really important. So when I think about how we transform any system of care, healthcare, K-12, mental health, it starts with people feeling like, you know me, I matter to you. And if, Bob, if you think about the best teachers any of us have ever had, it wasn't about the, what they did in the front of the classroom. It wasn't their lectures. Those may have been great, but it's typically they took the time to know me. They cared about me. They took me under their wing. And that also includes putting time in. Like, no, like they would have coffee with me. They, they, they really learned about me. And the second chapter of the book is about aspiration. It's not enough to be recognized. You also have to have your vision lifted because education, go back to your question, the best education is transformational and there's no transformation outside of relationship. This is what I learned 
and talking to people like uh, psychologist uh, Jessica Benjamin, you know, noted psychologist at NYU, or Mike Matt Steinfeld at Yale, clinical psychologist. And what they would argue is that if you are going to make real progress in a counseling relationship, any relationship, and Jessica does things like works with Israelis and Palestinians, right, in Israel, like, like hard relational stuff, you can't make progress till you're in relationship working towards a third state. She has this notion of thirdness I talk about in the book. What that means is like, when we come from different places, we don't know each other, we don't understand each other, when we can agree on a third state that we're working towards, now we can transform. So if you think about the way, sorry, I know this is digressing, Bob, but the way politics are broken in America right now, we used to have a general sense of like, look, I may be really different from you, but we're both Americans. Right. Like, right, we appeal to this third state. And today, the discourse is, you're not a real American. Right. I disagree with you. I'm an American. You're not American. Right? And both ends are saying the same thing. You're so fundamentally un-American. So, so education starts with relationship. And I think where that got, how we think about that is that coaching relationship I, I mentioned to you. It's not just about feeling cared for. It's more existential than that. Right? Because the most, Greg would argue, the most basic human need we have is to feel like we matter. Mm. That's good. Why do people struggle with retirement? Why do people struggle when their kids, when they have an empty nest? God, I went into such a funk when our youngest left. But like, I so identified as their parents, my two daughters, as their father. Like, what, where's my mattering? Where's my meaning? And, you know, I had to take a catch of breath and say, all right, don't be an idiot. You have a lot of things going on in your life. But, but it's important. It's critical. It starts there. Well, what you're talking about is purpose, but also you're really talking about empathy as a tool for fixing broken systems. The The advisor that was talking to the trucker had to have enough empathy to go, how are you doing? How's your family? Where are you today? How is the drive? That That's really what we're talking about. And that has to come down, I believe, from the top, it has to be a value. It has to be the purpose and mission of the organization. So I guess, it, is empathy a buzzword or can it genuinely make a difference? I think I know your answer, but it sounds like what you're saying is starting with empathy and seeing others and feeling seen is, is a huge step in fixing broken systems. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, Bob. It's at the core of it. And no one successfully rethinking systems of care um, doesn't know that. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Marty Seligman, famous, you know, kind of one of the founders of the positive psychology movement, he's a professor at Penn. He was hired by the army during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. What they realized is that these multiple deployments are taking a huge toll, obviously. And what they wanted to think about is, could we build in resiliency? Marty does a lot of work around resiliency. Could we build in resiliency before we send people? Like, how do you build that reservoir of resiliency up? So he was paid to go to West Point, his team. And really, because those are the leaders, right? These are going to be the next generation of young officers who we send into combat. The first thing they started with was really a deep dive psychological profile of the cadets at West Point. Do you have a guess, Bob, with the number one personality trait is of a young future officer in the U.S. Army at the academy? Oh, gosh. If he's at the officer's academy, maybe, I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> the capacity to love and be loved. Wow. And the Army has a wonderful expression. You've probably heard it in other contexts. Your soldiers won't care what you know till they know that you care. Right. So we can train you. You can be brilliant. You can be a tactician. You can have incredible expertise, but if the people that you lead don't know that you care about them, don't feel like you care about them, it doesn't matter. And I think that's really what we see again and again in those successful innovators who are transforming systems. And that begins with empathy. That begins with a genuine, no, I'd love to tell you, you, you read it in the book, it's early in the book, the story of Loris Betts, who absolutely transformed a healthcare system, the largest healthcare system in Utah, the University of Utah healthcare system. And we can talk about that if you like, but in the end of all the things he did, I said, Loris, you know, you changed the reward system, I got paid for, the way people spend their time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What was at the heart of the work? 
Mm-hmm. Like when you, if you could boil it down, he said, patients wanted to feel like their doctors, their caregivers knew them, that they cared about them. That's what they wanted. And they know that's backed up in the research. If doctors spend even something, I'm not going to get these quite right, but the order of magnitude is if a physician spends even 10 minutes more per appointment with a patient, the chance that they'll get sued for malpractice, even when they commit malpractice, goes way down. Why? Because the patient feels like, no, 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 I know Bob. Like Dr. Hutchins, he, no, no, he's a good guy. He made a mistake. It happens. But if I don't know you and if I don't feel like you care about me, we don't have a relationship. Hmm. That's really good. That's really good. And the d- damage is in both directions. So when sure. you, you know, if you think about who, who gets called into these systems, they're caregiving systems. There's almost a sense of calling. And I talk to doctors who say, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I get paid. I might pressure the reward system for me is how many patients can I see in a day? I'm measured against the metric of efficiency. How many minutes on average? right? And I'm gone from patient. I, go, I didn't get into medicine to do that. I want to be a caregiver. I want to know my patients. And and you see, for example, it goes back to privilege, concierge medical practices. What are one of the great promises of those? Your doctor spends more time with you. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. If you really boil it down, right? Absolutely. Yep. And you pay a premium for it. Mm. Well, it begs the question in the world that specifically your world Technology is a huge piece of this, right? So again, the example of the trucker who can log in from anywhere on the road, we're talking about technology and digitization. And do you think that that can contribute to making these systems more human-centric or do they risk exasperating the problem? So two ways, and it's never been a better question because AI is now just turning up the volume on this one. But let me start with pre-AI and then let's talk about AI for a moment. So we are huge believers in technology. We're driven by data, but it's all in the service of that coaching model, all in the service of the human relationship. So we use a powerful CRM, customer relationship management system. We're doing predictive analytics. We're tracking your, in your our education platform. Hey, Bob hasn't logged in in three days. You might want to check in on him. Hey, Bob got a lower grade than we would have predicted on this exam. You might want to check in on him. And I may call you and say, I'm your, hey, Bob, how's it going? Like, it looks like that stats exam gave you a bit of a run for your money. I'm picking on stats because I was an English major. Looks like that stats exam gave you a run for your money. And you get to say, oh, week from hell, Paul. I work was crazy. My kids were sick, da, da, da. I already called my professor. He's going to let me do extra credit. I'm back on track next week. And I'm like, great. Anything else? You're like, nope, I'm good. I got to run CFI. Or I call you and you go, I don't know. What was I thinking? I can't figure this out. I was never that good in college. I'm not college material. Crisis of confidence, right? And that's a lot of our students. They tried college 10 years ago. They weren't ready or life got in the way. And in that moment, that intervention can be the difference between dropping out or getting some extra help and being successful and hanging in there. So in that advice, oh, wait a minute, Bob, look at, let's be serious. This one's giving you a run for your money, but look at your last three courses. You had two A's and a B plus. Have you gone to the tutoring system? I didn't know there was a tutoring system for stats. I thought it was just not, oh, no, no, no. Let me connect you. We're going to do it before your next exam, right? And we have all these tools. And part of it is just like, hey, you know you're smart enough. Come on. And, you know, I, I said this in passing earlier, but I was talking to our advisors, getting them back on their go. Hey, Bob, why are you doing this? What did you say about your son? Like, yeah, I know. I, you know, like, get you back to your motivation. Get you back to your why. Get you back to your existential, existential drivers. So, yeah, I think technology can be huge, and we do use it a lot, but always not in a replacement of the human, but in service of the human. I say that, and and I want to catch myself, because there are lots of transactions for which we use people that neither the people doing them nor the, our students want people. Like, it doesn't have, like, if I want to check my bill, I probably don't want to talk to someone. I just want to go on a portal, log on. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Those are different. Those are not... Those are transactional, they're not relational. And that's how I make that distinction. Now, AI comes along. And this is very problematic because A, you can start to create a kind of facsimile of a human relationship with AI. I don't know if you've used Pi, for example, which is more than you, right? So you can sort of create this illusion. And I think, you know, part of what's creating this sort of national anxiety about AI is the sense that we are going to be displaced. I have a different and more optimistic vision of what's possible, and it's in the book, even though ChatGPT came out after the book came out. I have a more optimistic view of what's possible, and that's that as 
we become no longer the most intelligent entity on the planet in terms of declarative knowledge, right? So LLMs, AI systems right now, far outperforming the human brain key areas, like if you follow protein folding, it's amazing, right? In yep. one hour, an artificial intelligence system solves something that a team of researchers has spent 10 years on. It's crazy. As we become no longer preeminent, and all of knowledge is really just a few prompts away on a device that I can hold in my hand, what becomes important? What I would argue becomes really important are distinctly human functions. Absolutely. Understanding, sense-making, creativity, relationship, right? And these are things that we associate with the humanities and the liberal arts, which have been on the decline. Yep. They are things that employers say they value, though they often don't reflect that in their hiring practices. And I would say that as we displace white-collar jobs with AI, and we're going to displace a lot of them, so automation displaced blue-collar jobs, right? Now we use robots in factories where we used to use a lot more humans. AI is going to displace white-collar jobs, knowledge economy jobs. And what I argue in the book is that we have so many human jobs that need to be filled. We need to flood our schools with amazing teachers and social workers and counselors. We need to rebuild that broken mental health care system. We need to flood our inner cities with people who can deal with the homelessness crisis we're facing. We need to build and rethink our criminal justice system. We're about a revolving door, in and out, in and out, in and out. We should be building. I read through the mission statements of all 50 correctional systems in the U.S. Almost all of them talk about how they prepare people to come back into society, prepare them to be good citizens again after they've sort of paid the price for what they've done. None of them do it. In California, I think that some like 1% of the criminal uh, penal prison system budget is devoted to the kinds of programs that could do that. We need to rebuild all these systems. AI can do none of those jobs. The problem right now in our society is that those jobs don't get paid well. They don't enjoy much status. And as a society, we don't even like to have that many of them. How few teachers can we get away with? How big can those classes be? How few prison guards can we get away with? So I do think that we're going to see this fundamental shift in the economy. And here's, if you think, oh, well, that's impossible, it's what's happened every single time in human history when a new paradigm-shifting technology has taken hold. So when the Industrial Revolution took hold and steam first came in, followed close on its heels by electricity, it changed the nature of jobs. Things that used to be important became less so. Things that were not important became more so. And we're already seeing these kinds of things. Can I give you one example? Then I'll you can stop me. Oh no! Please think about one of these like flips of the switch in the newsroom. Traditionally, the most talented and people there were the writers, reporters, and editors. Right? They were the stars of the show. That's where the talent was. That's what you would pay for the best writers and a fact checker, lowest person on the organizational ladder. That's the intern. That's the first entry level job. You just follow up and clean up, make sure the facts are right. Check that date, check that stat, et cetera. Call back that person that was interviewed, make sure that they confirm that quote. In a world of AI now, in which content creation is just happening at enormous speed and is going to displace the creation of content, trusting what you read is now a huge deal. So fact-checking, veracity, accuracy, is this real? Is that photo to be trusted? That's going to become a huge, newly important job, maybe more important than creating content. So that's just one of many, many shifts I think we'll see. Carlotta Perez, the economist, talks about this. When you have a paradigm-shifting technology, you usually have it for a while. AI has been around for a good long while. And then you have a catalytic moment in history, the release of ChatGPT on November 30th, 2022. And all of a sudden, everyone's got access to AI with natural language. You don't have to write it in a single line of code. And then, she says, you go into the in-between times. And the in-between times are ugly. And you have huge, huge shifts in society, huge shifts in the way we think, huge shifts in education and work. And, and then eventually you come out of that and you're in a new era. And my hope is that if we can get AI right, and I think it's a very small window, to be honest with you, but I'm still hopeful, we can get AI right we can rethink what jobs matter, what we pay for, what carries status. And we have examples. In Finland, school teachers are paid really well. Those standards are really high. By the way, Finland, best performing school systems in the world. You can get this right. These are human choices. These are not natural laws. This isn't because, you know, 
trees don't grow in Antarctica. Like all of these are human design choices and we can design differently. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I also believe I'm also a, a tech optimist in many ways. And I believe that there is a path and I believe it's probably the way forward that we, we will probably see a renaissance like we've never seen in the next 20 years because those things that we thought, and we saw this in the industrial revolution, those things that we thought were important, that gave us meaning, that were our jobs and our work and the things we trained for, we're going to have to reevaluate those things. I myself see, you know, things like copywriters, right? Getting all up in arms about how evil AI is take away their jobs. Now, that may be a reality for a short time, but let's dream of a world where maybe writing copy for other people's advertisements and medical journals for nine hours a day is not really the best version of yourself. Maybe that novel you've been dreaming about, maybe that learning you know, how to play the guitar you've always dreamed or, or, or write that masterpiece, that play, but you've never quite had the time and you didn't think it was important because you're providing for your family by this other, I think it's going to allow people to think about those things in the same way that you know, people in the industrial revolution who worked 18 hours a day didn't dream of taking vacations or spending more time with their families, right? Yeah. Um, but we set some laws and rules in place that said, you know, you know, we're going to have an eight-hour workday and we're going to have some child labor laws and it, it, those things change and evolve us as humans in much healthier ways. And I think, as you said, the white collar jobs are going to allow us to think about, okay, what about those soft skills? What about cre creativity? What about art? The things that now we have potentially more time for and we value more. So that that's my vision as well. I tend to agree with you, Bob. And I think we may rethink work. We may rethink how, you know, how, what we pay for. It's funny, the, there's a section of the book about something I dubbed the Human Work Initiative. I dreamed this up with Jamie Marisotis, who's the head of the Lumina Foundation. We're not big fans of UBI, Universal Basic Income. It tends to be just enough not to sort of revolt, you know, it's a, enough to get right. by, but it's a sub-poverty, right? But so what if you could actually say, look, at, if you need a job, we will guarantee you a human job. Working in a school, working in a hospital, we'll train you. And we'll guarantee you a pretty good wage so that two people could, working, you know, living together could actually have a good middle-class life. We used to have those jobs. We used to be able to work on an auto plant with a high school degree and send your kids to college or buy a home. Those jobs largely left with NAFTA and other global trade and global movement of labor. But what if we could rethink this whole thing and say, in a world, post-AI world or an AI world, where the knowledge economy has shifted, we're not going to, as a society, pay for these jobs that are distinctly human nourishing. And often, when you support them well, nourish the people who do them. It's incredibly, it's incredibly enriching to work with little kids in a classroom, unless you've got sixty of them and no supports, and you know, and old books and inadequate, and inadequate environment. But if we did it right, think about the ways that society could flourish. And of course, the next question from the skeptic is, well, how do you pay for it? You have to pay for it through thinking about the redistribution of wealth through your tax code. Bill Gates would say, tax the robots. Mm -hmm. If you're a factory that puts 5,000 people out of work because you're now you know, automated and you have five people, put a tax on all those robots and then pay for those jobs that actually take care of people. So there are creative ways to get that. Imagine if we got it right, what you would save from the criminal justice system if you weren't jailing so many of your citizens and you could shift those dollars. It's expensive to keep someone in jail in America. Yeah, it is. Right? And you can do this with area. Imagine if you could get your healthcare system right such that you were preventing people from catching uh, illness well before you have to get to the specialist, to the emergency room, et cetera. Um, we're smart enough to do this. But all of the innovators I interviewed realized one thing. You have to change where the money flows. You have to look at what's getting rewarded and what's getting punished. And when you start a school teacher with a $30,000 a year salary somewhere in a small town in New Hampshire and then give her twice as many kids as we know is workable, what do you think happens? 
There's a reason why 50% of all school teachers leave the profession five years after they enter it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard. It's very hard. And you mentioned places like Finland and, and other, you know, we all, all we need to do is look at some European and Scandinavian countries and see where the money flows and what's prioritized. Um, and, you know, the argument is always, well, they pay so much in taxes and I don't want to be taxed. Well, the difference is, is that tax actually goes for something that makes their lives better and they're not paying through the nose for things like mental health or health insurance and those things. You're yeah, paying a similar amount you're of money. You're on rental leave, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, great example. I mean, right, you know, you've known these sort of national happiness indexes, and some of this came out of Marty Seligman's work, actually, who I mentioned earlier. But Copenhagen typically is voted, excuse me, Denmark is typically voted the happiest country in the world. It also happens to have the highest tax rate. It's not a coincidence. That's right. Right? Free education, free healthcare. They're not lazy. I've been to Denmark. It's a pretty amazing place. Danish design, food scenes, right? Like, it's a dynamic place. These are choices, but at some point, and again, I think it started starting back in the 80s, we shifted our thinking about government, about taxes, about the private good versus the communal good, the narrative of the rugged individual. We choose our narratives because there's another narrative. There's an American narrative of collective sacrifice. Yeah. There's also a narrative about what happens when this country comes together collectively. Yeah. And people of a certain age mourn for the days when their communities felt healthy and where you know, it was safe, you know, to... to we were joking. I'm of a certain age where I remember with friends like, you know, your parents would say on a summer day in the morning, you know, get out of the house and be home in time for dinner. Yep. We were like, imagine that. You probably would be jailed as a parent. And, <laughs> as, and they have been jailed, actually. Yeah. For deemed child neglect because they left their kids out to play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last question I have for you. Your book has received praise for its innovative thinking, innovative approach. How, how do you feel about the impact it's making? And and what change do you hope to see as a result of putting it out there? So I think the important one for me is to start to reframe the reform debate around distinctly human questions like mattering, empathy, aspiration. The last chapter of the book, we've talked a lot about systems, Bob, but it's also about leaders because the people who are reinventing systems are individual leaders. And the hardest part, because I cringe like, who writes about love in a leadership book or a business book? But I write about love because it is a sort of, it is a kind of love. I and mean, I think about, you know, they don't care what you know till they know what you care, right? What works correct with his doctors. So, so I, I hope to reframe the debate. So we start. So when I think about how do you rebuild a system, I'll say, do you know the people and do you care about the people you serve? How do you, like, prove it to me? How do you think about it? How do you know them? And then do you understand the most powerful transformational human relationships that can actually work in what you do? And what I would say is identify those, hold that ground sacred, and then use technology to scale the hell out of everything else. Mm. And right now, a lot of people in a lot of professions use technology to satisfy the system in ways that don't have any impact on the people being served. I'm filling out this form. That doctor is, instead of looking at you in the eye when you're being examined, is looking at a laptop on one of those little convertible, you know, things on wheels where they put the laptop and they're entering data for the insurance company. That's not about making the patient better. That's about right. serving the system. So that's one. So I hope to reframe the debate. I hope to inspire because there are really some great stories. They're amazing innovators do really good inspire. The models are out there. And then the last thing, I hope it touches people. And I think some, for me, the most surprising reaction I've had and had wonderful reactions and lots of book talks really around the world at this point around the book. But the people who come up to me afterwards or have written me and said, there's one woman who I've never met. She's a college administrator. And she said, I knew that I should have known this was going to happen. I started the book at home and I brought it with me to the book a coffee shop. And I'm sitting here with tears coming down my cheeks. Mm -hmm. I feel seen. And, and then she went on to describe both her struggle to get through college as a low-income, poor young woman, and then as a college administrator, now being in a system where she's being burnt out. And the book really talks about both. And I love the work of Donna Beagle, who works, you know, around extreme poverty. And she says, and she comes from abject poverty, and she's now a college professor, a lecturer, has a wonderful center on poverty, which she says, 
when you talk to someone who's escaped extreme poverty, they never cite a program, a technology, a system, or a policy. They always cite a person. Mm. One person who believed in them. And Matt Beale, who's the head of child and adolescent psychology at Georgetown, is one of the people I interviewed in the book and has become a good friend. And I said, Matt, why do some people escape the worst circumstances? Like, what is it? Like, that one person who got out, and I have examples in the book of people who got out. But what do you think? How, what, what psychologically, and he said three things. First of all, there's typically something you can hook into, a passion. It could be music, basketball, astronomy, like it could be anything, but something, a fire you can light. Second thing, it's really helpful if they have any vision of better. Like he, he said, the ideal is they've had one year of normal in their life. Like remember that year when we weren't moving from place to place? Or remember that year when we had our own apartment? Or remember that year when whatever? So they have something that says, this isn't normal right now. But the third and most important item by far, they just need one person who believes in them. Yes. One person who says you are better than this situation. Yes. And I think that's really, and that's what's happening a lot. Like, it's touching a nerve with many of my readers who say, I want to tell you about that one person. Mm. And I've had amazing, amazing stories. That's amazing. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for your time. Is there a way that people can, do you have a blog, a website? How would people get in touch with you or stay up to date with what you're doing? Sure. So there is a, I, I'm on uh, X, I guess we now call it, and that's uh, at S-N-H-U-P-R-E-Z. So Snooprez, S-N-H-U-P-R-E-Z. Also, there's something on the SNHU website. SNHU's website is www.snhu.edu. It's called The President's Corner. So I often write their blog, essays, et cetera. And the book is available sort of most booksellers. Fantastic. The book is called Broken, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them. Pick it up anywhere you get your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Paul, this has been a great talk. Appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye.